The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Good morning, good morning, good morning, Heritage. How are you guys today? All right, excellent. Hey, stick your hand up if you need a Bible. If you're here today and you you don't have a Bible, we're going to be tracking through Luke chapter 4. You're welcome to turn there while announcements are going on. Real briefly, before we even start into the announcements, uh, for those of you who might be visiting or are new, my name is Jeremy. I'm one of the associate pastors here at Heritage, and uh, it's my pleasure to bring the scriptures to you this morning. I'm filling in for Jeff because, as you guys know, Jeff has been struggling with a kind of an ongoing sickness for a long, long time right now. And so yesterday, he finally went into ER and found out he has pneumonia. And so he is at home right now, resting and recovering, and um, he, they've given him some antibiotics and, and that kind of a thing, but uh, he, he's recovering. So that's why I'm uh, stepping up here and going to be bringing to you the scriptures this morning. So let's take a moment right now to uh, just pray for our pastor and pray for healing and recovery for him. Amen? Father, we do lift up Jeff to you. Lord, we thank you for the depth of your love for him. Uh, there, there's no doubt that if he were here, Lord, he could testify to your faithfulness throughout his life. From knitting his DNA together in his mother's womb, to sustaining him every day, to causing his heart to beat and his body to grow, Lord, you have cared for him throughout life. And even before his life began, you sent your son to absorb his sin upon the cross that he might know you, that he might receive you, Lord, and be born again. So there is no question about your love. And and knowing that, God, knowing the depth of your love, we now commit our brother into your care. We ask, Lord, for supernatural healing for his body, We pray that you would restore his health so that he can come back and share the scriptures with us once again. I pray your blessing on him while he's physically ailing and is at home recovering. I pray that even this morning, Lord, it would be a restful morning. God, that it would be sweet time with his family and that uh, it would be redemptive uh, as a place of rest in his life. So God, bless him, we pray, and heal him and bring him back to us soon. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. Okay, a couple of quick announcements before we get rolling. Uh, this coming Saturday, the Huddle Group Life Training Class is happening. That's Saturday, December 2nd, and it's from 8.30 to 11.30 at the Hub. Uh, so sign-ups end for that today. And the Group Life um, uh, Training Class is our initiation into huddle groups. So if you want to be a part of a huddle group or our small group ministry, you have to come to that class beforehand. It kind of just sets the framework of what are we doing with this? Why do we do it the way that we do it? How come we're keeping it small? What's the purpose of that? Um, So we want you to have kind of a vision for what we desire to see happening and the fruitfulness that we're we're hoping and praying will come from that. Also, quick correction. uh, In in the original announcement, it said that there would be child care provided for that Saturday uh, meeting. That is incorrect. There will be no child care provided uh, for this coming Saturday's class. So for those of you who are parents, uh, make sure that you uh, t- 
take note of that so that you're able to make arrangements for your children. Second of all, uh, foster the love holiday gift program. If you walked through, you saw uh, some of the ladies from our church with a Christmas tree. There's some paper ornaments on that tree. Um, This is an opportunity. We're partnering with every child And this is an opportunity to bless foster kids. And you can do that by picking up a toy, a gift card, a donation. You just pick up one of those ornaments and we we get you set up. So you can get more information on that from the ladies at the desk by the Christmas tree. Thirdly, a praise report, the Holiday Food Basket Ministry. Uh, thank you guys so much for all that you've done. Last, uh, last weekend, we delivered 126 Thanksgiving baskets within our community. Isn't that amazing? That's awesome. Yeah, amen. Amen. About 40 of you guys volunteered to go and participate in that, which means 40 people from Heritage went out into the community carrying 126 food baskets and bringing them from house to house into two separate ministries that we support. Um, And that's an incredible thing. And we raised $2,597 for this outreach to... uh, Uh, to our community. So what we want you to do is not only to celebrate that and give God praise for that, but also we've we've got another opportunity, and Christmas is right around the corner. Um, So we want you to be thinking about people that you know personally that you know would be blessed by a a food basket, because we're doing this again for Christmas as well. Um, in this last run, about 20% of the 126 food baskets that went out were generated, the needs were generated by people here at our fellowship. That means you guys submitted names of people that you knew, people that were maybe family or friends or coworkers or people in your neighborhood that you thought, man, this would be a great opportunity to just say, hey, we have... We have received the love of Jesus in very tangible ways, and we want to also give the love of Jesus in very tangible ways. So um, be thinking of those names. If you've got somebody in your family or a, a co-worker or a friend or somebody in your neighborhood that you know would be blessed by this resource, please make sure you submit those names to us so that we can uh, make sure that they get a basket for the holidays. And last but certainly not least, last night, Cascade, the high school that we meet at, their high school football team took state. Yeah. And that's worth celebrating. That's a big deal. It hasn't happened in about five years. And so that's a pretty big win. And I'm I'm sure uh, there's lots of people that are flying high uh, over that one. So that's, that's definitely worth celebrating. So let's go ahead and uh, open up with a word of prayer before we take a look at the scriptures here. Uh, Father, when Paul came to Corinth, he determined not to be eloquent. He determined to say things simply and plainly. And he tells us why, God. Because he wanted their faith, the faith of the Corinthians, to not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the demonstration of the power of the Holy Spirit. 
And with that truth, Lord, and with that heart, we commit our time to you now. God, speak to your people. Lord, give us ears that we might hear the words of your spirit today. God, give us hearts that willingly and joyfully surrender to the authority of your word. Magnify for us Jesus, the Savior. Exalt him and cause him to be lifted high in our hearts and minds, God, that we would be overwhelmed with the opportunity to cast ourselves wholly upon him. God, give us teachable, open, and listening, and ready hearts in the name of Jesus and for his glory. Amen. Luke chapter 4 is where we're going to be at. By way of introduction, I think it's good for us to orient ourselves in the passage, find out what has happened up until the point that we're going to be examining. We're going to be looking at verses 31 through 44 and talking about the authority of Jesus. But I thought it good to orient us a little bit. Uh, Jesus, prior to coming to Capernaum, which is the passage that we'll be looking at, he was in Nazareth. Now, Nazareth is the hometown. It is the place that he grew up. It's the place where they know him best. And it was there in Nazareth, it was a Sabbath day, and Jesus was there in the synagogue. And he was given an opportunity to read from a scroll, and there was presented to him the scroll of Isaiah. And he opened up to a passage there in Isaiah, and he read the passage, beginning in verse 18, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. The word anointed there is a tip-off that it is a messianic passage, that it refers to the anointed one, the Messiah who will come. And he says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed upon him. So Jesus reads from this passage in Isaiah. He, he gives the scroll back. He sits down, and everybody's waiting to hear what he says. Notice these next words, verse 21. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Oh, at first, the joy that hits the hearts of these people. You see, everybody knew that this was a messianic passage. Everybody was anticipating. You see, all Israel was hoping for that moment when the Messiah would come. When he would finally take authority in Israel among God's people. When he would cast off the Roman oppressors when he would cause Israel to once again be exalted as a nation 
and known as a people that belong to God exclusively and are not under the hand of some foreign dictator. And immediately, they're like, yes, we want a Messiah. Notice, notice the reaction. Verse 22, and all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And then, all of a sudden, a change happens. Right in the middle of the verse. At first they marvel. At first they're awestruck. They go, yes, their hearts rejoice at that thought. And then they go, wait, wait, wait a minute. It's not this Joseph's son? Here's what happens. They go, yes, yes, we want Messiah. And then they realize Jesus is saying, it's me. I'm the one. And they go, yeah, not you. Why? Because he's the kid that grew up down the street. He's the son of a carpenter. He's just an average guy. We saw him grow up. We played stickball with him in the streets. We, we, we know the stories from his family. Whenever there was a community get-together, we, we ate over at his house. We saw this little rug rat grow up and take over his father's business and be, become a carpenter. And, and, and yeah, he, he speaks real good. He's a good talker. He's inspirational. We, we think he's great. But, but Messiah? That's a bit of a reach. Now, of course, we, on this side of history, we look back and we go, yeah, he was the Messiah, and you should have figured it out. But imagine that for a moment. Imagine you're hanging out in your huddle group. You're there, it's, it's a time of sharing, it's an open time of sharing. One of the members of the group says, by the way, everything that God has promised is being fulfilled through me. What are you going to think? <laughs> Not my small group. No way. I mean, that, there's, there's no way. You? See, here was the problem at Nazareth. They were too familiar with Jesus. They were too familiar with Jesus. And, and they said, yeah, we want, we want Messiah. We want king. We want ruler. We want the kingdom. We want all of that. But we don't want it through you. When we picture Messiah, we picture somebody with a really cool unitard and a cape. When we picture Messiah, we, we picture something supernatural and amazing and not average. We picture a warrior, a skilled fighter, not a carpenter and a rabbi. Not you. You're not what we imagined. You see, they were too familiar with Jesus. And so, they reject him. Not only do they reject him, but Jesus begins to try and reason with them and explain. He's like, listen, I'm not the first prophet that has come. There have been others too. And Israel did the same thing that you guys are doing right now. He did the same thing. 
Or they did the same thing. They, they rejected those that God had sent. They were too familiar. They said, no, not that guy. No, he's too weird. No, it can't be him. And so you know what God did? God went to other people who would accept them. Elijah was sent to the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. There were many lepers, verse 27, in Israel during the time of Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian outside of the house of Israel. This made them mad. Oh, they were ticked. They said, oh, who do you think you are? They just they grab him and they, they start moving and they, they made their way up the hill. Verse 29, they rose up and they drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of a hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. You see, the rabbis taught that for a proper stoning to actually take place, what you needed to do was take a person to a place where you could cast them off the hill, cast them off a cliff, and they would be broken in the casting down, and then you could stone them. And the witnesses of the wrong that they had done, they were the first people to throw the stones. So they brought him to this place. They are going to stone him. But passing through their midst, he went away. It might have been that because they were not actually legally allowed to execute somebody because of the Romans, or it could have been just a supernatural act of Jesus, somehow something happens, their mob that is about to kill Jesus breaks apart and Jesus passes through them and he leaves. Now he leaves his hometown in Nazareth. The Sea of Galilee is like this, and I'm to reverse it here in my head. Uh, and, and to the southwest is his hometown, Nazareth. So Jesus goes due north on the western side of the Sea of Galilee to a little town called Capernaum. Capernaum was a boom town. It was, it was still a small village, but it was a boom town in this regard. Uh, fishing around the Sea of Galilee was the equivalent of what logging was in the 19. 60s, 70s, and early 80s here in the Pacific Northwest. It was a, an industry that popped up and everybody was getting on board and it was a way to make money. It's very similar to the pot industry in Southern Oregon right now. People were gathering from all over and coming to the Sea of Galilee and trying to make their living, trying to make a buck. Jesus heads into this small town. In verse 31... He went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. So the Sabbath day rolls around again, and, and they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. So during the Sabbath, Jesus begins to teach and share just like he did at Nazareth. And as he taught and as he shared, they were astonished because his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue, verse 33, there was a man who had a spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. 
But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out of him. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. And he rose, and he left the synagogue, and he entered Simon's house. Now, Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever. And they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her, and then he rebuked the fever. And it left her, and immediately she rose up and began to serve them. Now, now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases, brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And all the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. We're going to examine four things today from our text, verses 31 through 44, about the authority of Jesus. Verses 31 through 32, the authority of Jesus over religious commentary. The authority of Jesus over religious commentary. Verses 33 to 37, the authority of Jesus over spiritual principality. Verses 38 to 41, the authority of Jesus over physical infirmity. And verses 42 through 44, the authority of Jesus over his ministry. So now tackling the first one, the authority of Jesus over religious commentary. Jesus goes into the synagogue. This was his custom. He went to the house of Israel. He's ministering to his own people, presenting himself as Messiah. And he's teaching And he's reasoning among those who hold high the authority of God's word. But you see, there was a a tradition. Matter of fact, if you have a chance ever to go to Israel, or maybe some of you here in this room may, may have been there, if you get to go to Capernaum, the hometown of Peter, to this very day, there's a 4th century uh, rebuild of the synagogue there. And uh, you can see the, it's one of the clearest layouts of a synagogue from a, that historic period. And uh, it, it was a, essentially a rectangle. The door faced towards Jerusalem, the door of, of the synagogue. And inside, there was benches around the outside of the the rectangle, and then a a series of stone seats that you could sit on, sort of steps that moved down to a dirt floor in the middle. Columns that surrounded the entire thing, and a rabbi, a local rabbi, would come in, and he would read the passage of, of Scripture for the day, and then would give the explanation, would give a homily, a, a sermon of sorts, on that 
passage of Scripture. It's very much like what you see happening here today. And here's typically what would happen. The rabbi would sit down and he would begin to talk and he would say, well, according to Rabbi Hallel, this passage means this or that or this. And Rabbi Gamaliel says this, and this passage means this or that or this. And then they would argue about commentary or make commentary about commentary from other commentators about the Scripture. That's how it would happen. And, and, and in their culture, depending upon uh, what rabbi you followed, uh, there was a claim, if you will, to authority through that person. It, it, it gave you a sense of legitimacy if you could somehow connect your ideas to somebody who was well-known or respected in that religious community. But that's not what Jesus does. Matter of fact, in Matthew's gospel, this same passage here, this same story, it says that Jesus spoke with authority, and then Matthew adds this little tagline, not like scribes. Why? Because they were just quoting each other. I mean, if there had been Google in those days... They would Google one another's sermons, highlight the best parts, reformat it to their own sermon, and then spew it back out. And people made a living that way. But that's not what Jesus did. He, he would come in and he would say things like, you have heard it said this or that. But I say unto you, this is what it means. He appealed to no other authority. He appealed to no other authority. Scripture was the highest court of authority. And he gave what it meant. What it said. You know, sometimes as a pastor, i got to be honest, I, I get overwhelmed with the amount of information that is out there to be consumed. And I'm kind of an information junkie. Like, I love to read. I love to learn. I, I love the whole stimulating process of how it affects my, my brain and the way that I think and shapes my reality. I love that process. It's, it, it's a wonderful, wonderful thing for me to be able to study deeply different subjects. And at the same time, it's crazy to me that for this passage, I need to have six or eight commentaries that are that thick, centering on the Gospel of Luke, to somehow be respected or thought of as authoritative in the church world. 
Among pastors, maybe, maybe some of you guys know this, some of you may not. Uh, among pastors, there's always discussion. Hey, what commentaries are you reading? What's this? And who do you find to be the best? And, and, and that's because we love resources and we like to grow. But it also is a little bit of a statement about what bent you are and what your thought processes are and, and, and who you are as a person. You know what I love about Jesus? He appealed to God's word as the highest court of authority. How many of you guys have ever been to Powell's in Portland, Powell's bookstore? Love that place. You can get lost in there for several days, right? Easily drop a couple grand. It's, a, it's an awesome place. And they've got, they know it, too. They know it because they put food and coffee on the bottom floor so you don't actually ever have to leave. It's a wonderful place. If you go to the, the Christianity section there, you cannot believe the number of books. I mean, we could go down here to Barnes & Noble, right? Explore the Christian section. How many of those books do I need to read in order to really get it? Is that what Jesus intended? Is that what God shed his blood for? That we would have to appeal to all these outside resources to get... Now, I am not shutting down study. Study is good. Understanding, growing, that is wonderful. And we should all be good students of the Scriptures. But can I tell you something? The commentaries need to be judged by God's Word rather than God's Word being judged by the commentaries. And it doesn't stop there, does it? How many sermons I listen to that are just simply the regurgitation of other people's thoughts. And the Word of God has not passed through the hearts of those individual men. I hear Tim Keller quoted and John Piper quoted, men of God whom I love and respect, and I am thankful for their ministry to the body of Christ. I'm absolutely 100% thankful. But they are not the standard for authority. God's Word is. This book. And as long as they are submitted to this book, then they stand under the authority. And to the degree that they are not submitted to this book, then they are no longer under the authority of God because the Scripture is the highest court for the believer. When the Reformation happened, this is one of the points they decided we will die on this point. There was sola de gloria, only for the glory of God. Sola de gratia, only through grace, only by grace. Sola Christus, only by Jesus. Sola fide, only by faith. They said... We need one more distinctive that makes us completely different from what we are protesting, what we are getting rid of, what we are moving back to. Sola Scriptura. It is only the Scriptures. It's not papal edicts. 
It's not the traditions of men. What do the Scriptures say? It is the highest court of authority for the believer. And Jesus, pulling from the Scriptures, didn't quote another soul. He said, you've heard what God's Word says. Now this is what it means. It's the burden of every person that shares the Scriptures. Not to be creative. Not to be entertaining. But to be honest with the truth. Amen? So first of all, we see the authority of Jesus over religious commentary. Second of all, we see the authority of Jesus over spiritual principality. So after he's done reading and teaching, somewhere in the midst of this this moment here where they're marveling at the words that he's speaking, somebody begins to cry out. I love the way that this is described because if you have the ESV, the demoniac man, the the demon-possessed person, just goes, ha! Can you imagine that? We're in the middle of church. I'm up here teaching, or Pastor Jeff is up here teaching, or, or worship is happening, and somebody in the back corner or here in the middle begins to cry out, Ha! Ha! You're like, what is going on? And he's making a ruckus, right? He's interrupting everything that's happening. And the attention is all on Jesus for a moment, but this person is very, very distracting from what Jesus is wanting to say. What he's speaking. Verse 33, and in the synagogue there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now, in Jesus' day, Casting demons out was actually not such a strange idea. It was fairly common, actually. The Pharisees and rabbis and followers of these individual teachers had the ability to throw demons out or cast demons out. But casting out demons within the framework of Pharisaic Judaism required one to use a specific ritual. So they had kind of a manual for how to do it. Uh, And it took place in three stages. First, the exorcist would have to establish communication with the demon, begin to talk with the spiritual entity that was residing in the soul of another person, in the heart of another person. And then they would have to find out the demon's name. And then thirdly, after finding out the demon's name, they could, by use of that name, have authority to throw the demon out. Now, there's a couple of occasions where you see Jesus actually do this, right? You guys remember the the demoniac at Gadara, right? Where he says, who are you? To the the man that was possessed with a a legion of demons. And then the voices came out of him. We are are legion for we are many. So there's the name, right? But it's interesting that Jesus doesn't go through this process in every instance. He doesn't follow that pattern. He doesn't follow the Jewish methodology. 
but rather he appeals to his own authority. He rebukes the spirit, says, get out. Not your home anymore. It's time to leave. Depart. Now, the, the rabbis actually had a real dilemma, and so did the Pharisees, these, these professional exorcists, Jewish exorcists that would roam the countryside, because every once in a while you would encounter a demon who affected the physical body of a person to such a degree that it made them mute and they were not able to speak. So the person who was trying to cast out the demon couldn't get a response from the other person who was possessed. And if they can't get a response, they can't know the name. If they can't have the name, they don't have authority. If they don't have authority, they can't cast the demon out, and they were stuck. And so they would resort to things like chaining up a person, imprisoning them, tying them up, caging them like an animal. That was essentially how they dealt with those individual cases. But Jesus doesn't wait for a name. Matter of fact, in one story in the Bible, there's a person possessed by a demon who is made mute and he casts the demon out without ever even having a conversation. Why? Because Jesus has authority over spiritual principalities. Now, in the days of Jesus and the apostles, evil spirits were mysteriously allowed by God to exercise influence both over the souls and over the bodies of men. Sometimes that reflected itself in a person not being able to speak in the example that I just used, or sometimes a person would have seizures or fits. There's one instance where a, where a, a father comes and is appealing to Jesus and says, hey, please help my son. He's possessed by a devil. And sometimes it tries to throw him into the f- water to drown him, and sometimes it tries to throw him into the fire to burn him up. But this, this spiritual oppression was set on the destruction of the person. These fallen spiritual entities, whether they be fallen angels or whether they be something else, the spirits of, of, of the Nephilim, which were part human, part, uh, part uh, spiritual being in the Old Testament, uh, whatever that is, these fallen demonic entities are not surrendered to the authority of God and they seek inhabitation. They seek to inhabit and control and destroy a body, a human Jesus has authority over them. Now, these, the, these symptoms that would happen, sometimes it would be, you know, uh, these seizures or blindness or muteness or uh, differing things. It, it, it has led some of the modern scholar, scholarship today to reject any notion of demonic activity. Because they say, hey, listen, that was back in archaic times. And in those times, they didn't have any understanding of like epilepsy or schizophrenia or these mental disorders that would happen. And so uh, as a result, they just, they just chalked everything up to some sort of spiritual influence. But it's interesting that in the scriptures, there is a distinction. The Bible talks about those who were moonstruck, moonstruck or lunatics people who had a, something happening in their mind. It wasn't a spiritual oppression. Talks about those who had epileptic seizures and paralysis, who had real infirmities. The Bible makes clear that there were physical, emotional, mental 
infirmities in those days. But there was also spiritual affliction. C.S. Lewis, I think, said it best. There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall in our thinking about devils. One is to disbelieve their existence. And the other is to believe in their existence, but to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. This is a salient warning to us. You see, I, I see this problem in the church as well. It's not just the world that wants to, you know, throw off any idea of any sort of spiritual activity, but, but within the church, there, you have one wing of the church that's on this end of the spectrum that says, oh man, there, there's demons everywhere. You don't have a problem with lust, brother. You've got the demon of lust, and we need to cast the demon of lust out of you. Oh, you don't have a sickness. You are oppressed by a demon. Oh, you don't have this problem. And there's no stewardship. There's no ownership of the person's own heart. They're never brought to a place of accountability before God. And then on the other side of the spectrum is a group that wants to say, no, everything has a natural cause. There is nothing supernatural any longer. We don't worry about demons. We don't talk about demons. We don't think about demons. There is no spiritual oppressor. But in the middle stands Jesus and the Word of God. It says there is both. There are physical, mental, emotional issues in the lives of people. And there is also spiritual oppression. And I have found in pastoral ministry that sometimes the two go hand in hand. That is, those who have deep emotional issues are easily afflicted by the enemy. Those who have mental and emotional weaknesses are easily targeted by our enemy. So what do we do? Tell you a story. When I was living in Cave Junction, um, there was a moment where my wife and I were, were praying specifically for her for the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which is a whole another issue, another thought process. But in that time, she was in need of special blessing and empowerment from God in a season of vulnerability and weakness. And so we prayed together. We spent time on our knees, in our living room, asking God, seeking God, please, Lord, fill my wife afresh. God, renew her strength. And she's like, I don't, I don't know. I, you know. She didn't like start speaking in tongues. She didn't fall on the ground. I never hit her in the forehead. That never happened, right? She was not slain in the spirit. There was nothing, there was nothing, right? So she's like, I, I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I feel the same. <laughs> you know? And, and later that evening, we went to go get a pizza. We went to a place in Cape Junction called the Pizza Pit. It was owned by this little Italian guy. Looked like Luigi. His name was Bob. <laughs> and so we went and saw Bob down at the Pizza Pit. <clears throat> While we're down there, 
there is a homeless man who's walking by the front of the store, and we're standing kind of in the front entryway, and actually we're sitting down, excuse me, and, um, and this guy walks in, and when he walks up to the window, he starts pointing at my wife and just uttering these foul obscenities. He's dropping all kinds of language, and he's threatening to kill her, all kinds of stuff. I'm clueless, because I'm talking to Bob, <laughs> right? And my wife is like, <laughs> you know, yanking on my shoulder, and I'm like, what, what? And she goes, hey, this guy's freaking out over here. I don't know what's going on. So I, I see what's happening. I realize she feels afraid, and so I, I put my body physically in between his line of sight and, and my wife, and I'm like, what's your deal? You know, I'm, I'm, have you ever had that thing where when you know somebody can't hear you, you, you mouth the words, but no sound comes out? Yeah, that's what I'm doing. I'm like, what's Right? So then I'm like, okay, well, I'm going to go confront this guy. So I, I tell Bob, <clears throat> I'm like, Bob, I don't know what this dude's trip is, but I'm, I'm going to go out and talk to him. And Bob, like a flash, hops, vaults himself over the countertop, goes running out the door. And he's like, you leave my customers alone, blah, blah, blah. And he's, you know, he's re- being really aggressive with this guy, which was not my original intent. Uh, <clears throat> but... I, I, I shoot him off of the property of the pizza pit and into now the parking lot of ShopSmart in Cave Junction. And so I, I'm letting Bob do his thing. <laughs> and then uh, when Bob is done, he goes back in. And I, so I pr- proceed to kind of talk to this guy. I'm like, hey, how you doing? Uh, what's, what's your name? And, and, he's, and he's like a two-year-old kid. It, it's the weirdest thing. He looks so aggressive through the glass, and he's saying just like really angry, terrible, terrible things. And, and, and then when I talk to him, he's like, oh, I, I, I didn't mean to offend anybody. And it, like, it's just weird. I'm like, what is this dude's trip? And immediately, I'm thinking mental illness or something like that, which is common a lot of times in the homeless community. And uh, I said, where are you from? And all of a sudden, his eyes rolled back in his head, and just the white part of his eyeballs is showing through his eyelids, and he goes, oh, we're from everywhere. And I'm like, whoa. Uh, I think I read about this. (laughs) I am, uh, at this point in my life, about 22 years old. And, um, yeah, I went through the school of ministry at Applegate, and I don't, maybe I was sick for the day where they have the demon casting out class. <laughs> I had not had that class. So I felt woefully unprepared for this moment. But I, I knew two things. I knew... That when Jesus takes over the heart of a person, it's a complete renovation from the inside out. And where his authority resides, demons have no authority. So I I said, you know what? Maybe this is one of those times where God is going to cast a demon out in the shop smart parking lot. So I took a step towards him. I said, hey, listen, I can see that you are oppressed. And that may be against your will. And I want you to know you don't have to live like this. And he started backing up. 
hands over his ears. He's like, stop it, stop it. So I took another step towards him, and I, I said, hey, listen, Jesus can set you free. And he started screaming, don't say his name. Don't say his name. And I took one more step, and as soon as I did, and I started to speak, he ran out of the parking lot across four lanes of traffic, almost got hit by a car, to, across the street to a little mini-mart called the Speedy Mart that was there. And they had a phone booth back, for those of you who are young, phone booths. <laughs> With these glass closets, and they kept a phone inside so you could make phone calls. All you needed was a quarter. So he's in the phone booth. The bottom half was like blue or red. I can't remember what color, but it was like opaque. You couldn't see through it. The top half was glass. And he's literally behind the glass, peeking over the top, screaming obscenities at me. Stay away from me. Don't say his name. I'm going to blankety-blank kill you. I'm going to blankety-blank this. And I'm like, wow, that was intense. So I went back in, grabbed my wife. We got our pizza. We went home, and I slept with a pistol underneath the pillow because I didn't know what could happen next. I'm like, do do demons have GPS? I mean... (laughs) Can he find me? I have no idea what's going to happen, right? Here's the thing. This is why I tell you this story. One, because it's got great entertainment value. (laughs) Two, two, here's the deal. We want to chalk things up to natural causes in life. But we have a real enemy. You know what he wants? He wants to destroy your home your marriage, these relationships in your life. He wants to upset churches and cause division. He wants to, he wants to oppress people and keep them under his control. It's not just that people are, you know, alcoholics or drug addicts. A lot of times there is a component of spiritual pressure pushing them towards self-destruction. It's not just that people have emotional issues. They do have emotional issues. But the enemy preys on those things. And he pushes on those people and says, you're without hope and God will never accept you and you will never be forgiven and you can never get rid of your shame and you will never have victory. And Jesus comes in of his own authority and says, no, that one belongs to me. Not your house anymore. It's time to leave. Because Jesus has authority over spiritual principality. He doesn't appeal to someone else. He doesn't follow the three steps for demon casting out. He says, no, I'm in charge here. You go. The demons knew, didn't they? Look at what they said, verse 34. They, they know, first of all, Jesus' identity. He's the Holy One of God. They know Jesus' authority. They said, have you come to destroy us? They know Jesus' destiny. Check this out. They have a good theological understanding of eschatology. They know there is a moment of judgment coming where Jesus will cast them into eternal torment. They know it's coming. Here's the interesting thing, though. They're not saved. 
What do you mean by that? They believe in him. They know his name. They understand him theologically. They believe that he is who he said he is. They believe in the tenets of the second coming, the final authority of God, his rule over everything. But they're not saved. Matthew Henry, in his commentary, said a long time ago, it is not knowledge but love that distinguishes saints from devils. He is the firstborn of hell that knows Christ and yet rejects him and will not be subject to him and to his law. Here's what he's saying. The mark of a believer is not just knowing about Jesus, understanding his name, having a theological understanding or believing that he exists. It's trust. It's love. It's surrender. Having done youth ministry for a long time, one of the most common things that I see among kids is that they get all of the concepts about Jesus. They even believe that he exists. But they don't believe any different than demons. They have never come under submission are under the authority of Jesus. They have never fallen in love with him and clung to him in trust. You and you alone, Jesus, can save me from my sin. There is no active faith in them clinging to Jesus, simply a cursory knowledge of who he is. Faith that saves is faith that clings to Jesus. And so we see the authority of Jesus over religious commentary, over spiritual principality, thirdly, over physical infirmity, over physical infirmity. In verse 38, Jesus leaves the synagogue after casting the demon out. He enters into Simon's house, and Simon's mother-in-law is ill and with a high fever. Those of you who uh, know medically, you can correct me and rebuke me afterwards because <laughs> I didn't Google it. But when you have a fever, it seems like there's something major happening. Your body's actually trying to burn out some sort of infection. And that could be viral. It could be bacterial. That means at the molecular level, when Jesus, it says here, rebukes the fever... It tells us that Jesus has authority over bacteria and virus. <laughs> He's like, hey, not your home. This one belongs to me. Be gone. Not only that, but Jesus has authority over the, body, the body's ability to heal. Listen. Jesus raises up Peter's mother-in-law, and she, she, it's not like just the bacteria's gone. They're like, okay, fine, we're out of here. Boom. They leave, and then she's like, oh, that was devastating. I'm so tired. I just need a big nap. She physically recovers, gets up, and begins waiting on Jesus and the disciples. He restores her body physically in that moment. It's miraculous. Just a question. What's your first go-to when you feel sick? 
to hit the medicine cabinet? Call the doctor? Or is it run to Jesus? Now, I am not saying you don't do the others. Absolutely, you do the others. But Jesus really does have authority to heal. He really does heal. Yes. <laughs> Amen. Jesus really does have authority to heal and to restore. And we, we come to him as people that he shed his blood for. People he laid his life down for. Isn't it a joy? Isn't it a joy to know that when we pray when we seek God on behalf of our friends and our family, that these are not just empty, positive thoughts being thrown into the air. But we have a God who has the authority to rebuke sickness and restore physical health. And sometimes He uses doctors. Sometimes he uses medicine, and sometimes he uses the body's own natural and wonderful uh, abilities to fight off disease, but sometimes in response to a request, God does the miraculous. And we will suffer for months and months without ever asking. It's Jesus' authority over physical infirmity. And lastly, Jesus' authority over his ministry. Verse 42. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving again. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God. To other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Here's the thing after Peter's mother in law was healed, the, the night comes, and it's the start of the new day because the Jewish day starts at about six o'clock after the sun goes down. And so at, as the sun goes down, it's now a new day, it's no longer the Sabbath. People can come and be near Jesus. They can travel because on the Sabbath they weren't supposed to travel very far. So they come and they're thronging him and all night he's healing and casting out demons and miracles are happening. It is the night of miracles. And in the morning he, he, he wakes up and, and uh, he, he begins to leave. And the people come and they say, hey, no, we want, we want you to stay here. Just stay with us. And Jesus says, nope, nope, I, I've got other work to do. There's more stuff to do. Listen. Jesus didn't minister by need. Need is not what dictated what he did. Jesus did not minister by popularity. Hey, I'm pretty popular in this place. I guess I'll just keep hitting that button. Because popularity wasn't his end goal. It wasn't what he came to do, would be popular. Jesus didn't minister by consensus. There wasn't a vote. It wasn't like, hey, what do you guys think I should do? How should I maybe do this? <laughs> No, Jesus ministered by calling. By calling. He did 
what his father told him to do. Listen. All the miracles that Jesus did. Did you know that the sick that he healed went on to die? Did you know the dead he raised went on to die again? That wasn't the end goal. That wasn't the end game of Jesus. The purpose of the miracles was something else. The miracles were not the message. The miracles served the message. The miracles served the message. It was a foretaste of the eternal kingdom of God. In other words, it's, it's as if Jesus is asking this question, what does it look like when God has his way? What's it going to look like when final redemption takes place? Let me give you a little taste. The sick are healed. The oppressed are freed. The dead are raised. The blind see. The deaf have their ears open. I want you to see what it's like when God restores as he has always wanted to and plans to. See, the purpose of the miracles was to bring people to the crisis of having to decide what will we do with Jesus? Will we come under his authority? Rejected. Set of questions that we need to ask. Which one are you? Are you Nazareth or Capernaum? Has the name of Jesus become so commonplace that you forget its authority? Have you heard the gospel so many times that it doesn't mean anything to you? Are you so familiar with Jesus and his teachings and the word of God that you can't see how spectacular his authority is? That these are not just ideas, but realities. What will you do with Jesus? Will you reject or accept the authority of Jesus' words? Will you reject or accept Jesus' spiritual authority? Will you accept or reject Jesus' authority to heal? Will you come under the authority of God the Father and the ministry of Jesus? Will you surrender yourself in love and trust to Him? That's the question of the day. And this is not something we theorize about. This is something we either are doing or are not doing. Do you trust him from the heart? There may be somebody here this morning that has never actually come to that place. Maybe you have a knowledge, an intellectual understanding about Jesus but today is the day that God would call you to submit yourself to his authority and come under his authority and find out that when he died on the cross, he died that you might be saved and not just saved to get out of hell, 
but save to be restored and renewed, to be freed from all oppression, to be ministered to by His healing grace, and to be loved and brought into His family. If you haven't made that decision, would you come and talk to me afterwards? I'd love to spend some time with you. I want to talk to you about the gospel and explain those things to you. For those of you who are believers, live under the rest of his authority. Go to him first. He sees your invisible enemy. He knows how to defend you and those you love. He sees your sickness and your weakness. Run to him. He knows the direction for your life. Follow him in it. Amen? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this reminder. Bless now your people as they go. And for those in here who may not know you, God, give them the strength and the bravery to come and talk. I know that even right now, the enemy would love to steal away the seed of the kingdom planted in those hearts. Don't let him, God. Push them forward by your Holy Spirit and draw them unto yourself, I pray. In the name of Jesus and for Jesus' glory, amen. God bless you guys. For those of you that want to talk, I'm going to be right over here on the left-hand side. May God richly bless you this week.